1: Welcome to the Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth.
2: Hi, hi, this is Gwendolyn. Welcome to the Visual Workplace. I'm Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm your host this week on our weekly radio show about letting the workplace speak. In each one of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the living landscape of work through visual devices, how to make it dynamically intelligent. Why? So that we can work with precision, with safety, with pace, with reliability, with predictability, with a harmony between us and the things of the workplace and the people in our workplace. So the company, the enterprise that we're working for can make a good profit margin, margin, increasingly good. And so that we can enjoy ourselves along the way. We can come into work. We're a human being. And when we leave, we're still a human being. This, this is an accomplishment. <laughs> So I'm here to tell you about work that I've been doing for the last 30 years, and it has been a, really the, uh, a great gift of my life, and a great joy. I learned so much about this. It's like discovering another language. It really is like, you know, walking up a hill, walking up a hill, and you think you're going to see something on the other side, you're completely unprepared. And what I saw was, oh my gosh. The visual workplace, the technologies of the visual workplace as they reveal themselves to me over the last 25 years. A, a, a framework of thinking. Who knew? I started doing little lousy 5S, but then I began to notice what happens when we made that 5S much more robust and what happened if we began to ply. These two questions, what do I need to know? What do I need to share? And what happened if we changed that I to we and how that really messed things up, how that I was very, very important. And I realized after a decade that visuality is an eye-driven methodology because we are embedding language, our operational language, into the living landscape of work. So all of this has been so interesting. There's a logic to it. There's a framework, and I've had the pleasure, the great pleasure, of codifying it, putting it into a a framework of thinking, deriving the principles, identifying the practices that come out of the application of those principles, and seeing how substantially visuality contributes substantially enough to make it an equal partner to every other improvement methodology that there is an equal partner to 6 sigma an equal partner to lean jit critical car, uh, critical path um streamlining the critical path an equal partner like two wings of a bird one wing is good two wings are better <laughs> two wings are going to get you somewhere the first wing if you're talking about lean is about pull the critical path and pull cleaning up that critical path and pull cleaning up the value stream if you will but it's more than that it's not just a value stream it is an intentional an intentional design of that value stream critical path and pull and then that's one wing and the other wing will be information language adherence standards play a very very important role in visuality and the Little twist is, but we attempt not to standardize our visuality, but we use visuality to embed our standards. If we standardize our visuality, if we try to make it uniform, then it loses its flexibility. We don't get robust applications. We get cookie cutter applications and they defeat us and they discourage us from using workplace visuality. We begin to think of it, we begin to think of it as a tool. Instead of a powerful system, beyond that, a powerful system of systems, and in fact, the very ground in which our operational systems exist. And that's what I mean by the embedding part. We're embedding the intelligence. And I just, I'm going to Australia next week. Oh no, I've been to Australia. I'm sorry. This is a pre-record. I beg your pardon. I get so confused with my timeline. I've been to Australia (laughs) by the time you hear this. (laughs) But at any rate, there's a, we're doing our first masterclass in Australia for people who want to get into advanced visuality and also really, really, really look closely and implementing for success, one could say. And there's a member of the uh, lean, um, construction industry coming to see how visuality could work out. We all we already know that lean can help the construction industry. And now, how can visuality really amp it up? So it's all very, very interesting. We're going to continue this week with what we were looking at last week, which is leadership. But an in-depth uh, look at leadership. Leadership and the inversion of power and what i'm going to be doing this uh you know we're now in our second year together and what uh i'm going to be doing is taking deeper looks at everything uh, you have had 50 weeks of a primer of uh you know all of the basic tutorials this is the way the system works 50 50 hours of that and now what i want and i gave you a pretty good articulation of that but now i want to go into uh, some components of that much more deeply and much more completely. I think the discussion is interesting, and I want to share what I've been discovering um, as these pieces have fallen into place, the depth that's been revealed to me about how visuality works and how useful it is and how very, very uh, hum- human it is, how much we need it as human beings. So last week we were looking at leadership and the uh, power inversion. This whole idea that leadership is power and that, um, leadership is also, uh, uh, misunderstood, misunderstood by many leaders, as a matter of fact. Uh, so I introduced a kind of a my paradigm for thinking about leadership. And, um, I want to also, if you want to see this discussion, uh, in print, uh, it's the third chapter of my book, Visual Workplace Visual Thinking. It's a really good book. It has a blue neutron on the cover. When I asked the designer to make me a cover for Visual Workplace Visual Thinking, he showed me a, um, a cart moving a, a material handling cart. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, how can we kind of get away from this literalness? And I said, give me something cosmic on the cover. So he gave me a blue neutron. And it's beautiful. It works perfectly. So the challenge of this new paradigm is to look at the question of power and to know that all parts of the organization is powerful, but there has been a history of power pulling on the upper levels, on what we call the um, executive level. And this is all often characterized by a pyramid that is standing there, top-down pyramid, with the boss at the top by way of review, and with us – Underlings on the bottom. And we're there to obey the boss. And the boss is there to direct us, to tell us what to do with our hands and our feet. And we are there to obey. It's been called the obedience model. It's been called the paternalistic model. It's been called the colonial model, the command and control model, and the military model. It is a very, you know, top down powerful. And it is incomplete by itself. So I talked about that last week, and I put in contrast to it another pyramid, but this one, as you might anticipate, is standing on its head. It's called the bottom-up pyramid. It's often synonymous with this idea of empowerment because the leader is at the bottom, the value add associates, you and me, are at the top, and the leader is there to support the top, but he's on the bottom. It's called servant leadership. He is leading, but he is serving as a leader. He is—he is. I'm sorry. Better said, he is providing service in his leadership position. So these two pyramids have often been uh, pitted against each other, so that we uh, think that we have to choose one or the other. And I came into the discussion that way too. Until one quiet day, I was working these pyramids, and I realized they kind of began to talk to me. They kind of revealed themselves, as they say. They revealed themselves to me. And I realized that both of the pyramids were needed, that they both had a distinct and equally important function, and that we needed to find a way for the both pyramids to coexist, and not only coexist, but collaborate and amplify each other, give us something greater, because they existed in some kind of... Uh, coexistence. You no, know, they were together. They were compatible. And as I looked at these pyramids, as I told you last week, I realized that they really portrayed much of the conflict in the world when they were kept separate. Not when they were blended, but when they were kept separate. And when they were blended, meaning one would sit in the other so that you would form this six-pointed star. The two pyramids you can imagine, right? Six-pointed star, one one pyramid representing three of the points pointing up, another pyramid pointing down representing the other three points, and together they're a six-pointed star. And as I began to research it, and I I happen to be someone who loves ancient art, I realized that I had seen the form before. I had seen the form in Mesopotamian iconography, meaning religious art, Egyptian religious art, Christian religious art, Jewish, Judeo religious art. I've, I saw it everywhere in in India. Did I mention India and in Hindu, Hindu and Buddhism? It's all over Buddhist religious paintings, all over it. But I, there was always a third element to these two pyramids. And that third element was they were inscribed in a, in a sphere. They were inscribed in a circle. So you would see this six-pointed star in a circle. And then it hit me. Oh my goodness. The blending of opposites create what the sphere represents and the sphere represents unity. And in, in the ancient iconography, in the ancient religious art that I've been describing, these this six-pointed six, six uh, pointed star, it's called a star tetrahedron, is always inscribed in a sphere. It's always there because this sphere is the expression of the blending of the opposites. So it's us and them, it's black and white, it's Muslim and Jews, it's management and union, it's men and women talking about extremes. <laughs> right? And as we work To blend, to blend, to blend. This third element begins to express itself. This wonderful sphere. And I'm not saying that we become as one. I'm saying rather we find common ground. And I want to pick up that theme. It's a central theme for today. I want to pick up that theme when we come back from our first break. See you in a moment.
1: business community's first choice in internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program.
2: Hi, it's Gwendolyn. Welcome back to the second segment of the Visual Workplace. I'm really glad you're here today. Thank you for joining me. We're in the discussion of blending opposites. We're in the bigger discussion of leadership and how, and what does power mean in terms of the enterprise? And you, and, and, And so with these opposites, the bottom-up pyramid and the top-down pyramid, what you actually have is equality but a different position. It's only position that creates the difference between a top-down and a bottom-up. But one of the things that I discovered in thinking about this a whole lot when I was writing this blue book, the one with the blue neutron on the cover, Is I asked myself, where is the power before empowerment? Where is the power before empowerment? Power just doesn't get generated. It isn't isn't as though we turn on an engine or a generator or plug something in and power comes through the socket. Not in an enterprise. And yet power is a, is a quantum. Where does it reside before empowerment? And I realized that before empowerment, when we have only the top-down model, that the power of empowerment is held hostage in your traditional top-down approach. It's held inside. You can think of the um, top-down pyramid as purple, And you can think of the bottom up pyramid, the empowerment purple uh, uh, pyramid as green. All that greens inside the purple, you don't even see it. You don't even see it. And that's why when a company decides that it will have an empowered workforce, it is such a powerful decision because it is about releasing the power that has been constrained by the old traditional approach, command and control, military model. We're taking the power that already exists in each one of us and we're saying, in this organization, we want you to use it. We release it with that decision. That's why it's so revolutionary. So that instead of having one or maybe 12 people in charge... We have a 200, whatever your population is. We have 3,000. We have 30,000 in charge of their own what? In charge of their own excellence. That's the theme I want to develop in a little while. So this finding common ground is the way to make these two powerful components of our enterprise work together. They work for the corporate intent. They find common ground. This is a great marriage. You know, you need to be about eight or nine months into your marriage when you say, you know what, I don't want to be as one all the time. <laughs> we got married, I want to be as one, but now, you know, after eight or nine months, I want my own room, or I, at least I want a place I can go to to be, but, uh, so, uh, uh, have some solitude, honey. And we find our separate ways. And if you look at these two embedded pyramids, you'll see that the, the – Prongs are held separate, but only the center is held in common. The difference between you and me. We meet where we hold something in, where we hold a thing in common, and we're also unique and separate at the same time. It's very, very beautiful balance. I have a story to illustrate this about How important it is to find common ground and how hard it is. But the rewards are tremendous. And this has to do with pro-life and pro-choice. It's hard to find more polar opposites than pro-life and pro-choice, especially in the U.S. Each has its ironclad set of values and premises that support its own correctness. And each brook no, each brooks no argument. And so it was quite a surprise when two groups in a small Midwestern town, this was about 20 years ago, it was actually in the mid-1980s, started talking to each other. And one said to the other, look, we are each so convinced of our own rightness, this is pro-choice, pro-life, and the other's wrongness, that one of these days we're going to start killing each other. In fact, you know, that kind of started happening towards the 1990s, but this was the mid 1980s. Why don't we sit down and try to understand each other, even though we know we can never, ever agree so that we don't get further polarized? So the groups, the two groups said, okay, pro-life, pro-choice. They decided to meet once a week and take turns in explaining their own perspective. One group would present, the other would listen. And the other group would present only after the first group understood completely. So that was the unusual ground rule. The listening group would not begin stating its position until the presenting group had said everything it wanted to say and had determined that the listening group had understood. And both groups agreed to the following definition of understood. When the listening group could repeat back the position and the perspective of the presenting group to the presenting group's satisfaction, it would be taken that the listening group had understood. And with that, with that ground rule in place, a coin was tossed at the first meeting to determine which group would begin, pro-life one. Pro-life began to explain its beliefs, its values, and premises. And at every step of the way, pro-choice was obliged to repeat back that understanding of what was said until pro-life said, Yes, now you understand. Now remember, we weren't saying now you agree, but now you understand. Do you know that that part, the first part where pro-life was doing the talking, pro-choice was doing the listening, and then feeding back their understanding until they got it right, that took nearly six months. And when it was complete, the roles were reversed. And then pro-choice spoke, and pro-life listened, and sought to comprehend and appreciate until pro-life could repeat back what pro-choice's party line was to the satisfaction of pro-choice. And that took another six months. And at the end of that year, the two groups. These two groups, polar opposites, understood the other group's position, even though they still did not agree with it, not one little bit. This, in the wisdom of this moment, the two groups made a monumental discovery. They decided they didn't want to throw the opportunity away. They decided they wanted to search for common ground, some area of endeavor that they could enter into together. And yet, and so there was another conversation and they realized that they both had an abiding interest in the welfare of children. And they began to meet once a month to work together on children's projects. Very, very inspiring. But there are several lessons here. And one of them is it takes a while. It's hard work. It's hard work to feel your rightness and feel the other person's wrongness and determine that it's more important for you to figure out, for both of you to figure out, how to live on the planet together. So, to decide it is better not to try to eliminate the problem by eliminating the person is <laughs> a novel idea, but rather to understand And not be obliged to agree. The two groups kept their differences. And held to them fiercely. But they found common ground. That is the center. Of these two opposite pyramids. Seemingly opposite pyramids. And they arrived at enough agreement. For them to move forward together. At least on this one issue of mutual interest. Finding common ground. You know it is almost identical I, in my opinion is identical with my definition of consensus this is actually quite a, a well known definition of consensus and I love it it's the active search for disagreement until enough agreement is met for us to move forward together we learn a new way the active search for disagreement until enough agreement is met for us to move forward together we learn we learn a new way and you know, it does cost. We s- lie there and disbelieve. I can't believe I spent a whole hour with those people again today, and they spent it with me. In many, many companies, the kind of shift between adversarial relationships to one that is at least workable, and then eventually, if we're to get very lucky, collaborative, it's a long journey. And that's why it's so felicitous to understand that that is how the circle around the two pyramids get exp- gets expressed. It is ex- it is worked, it, it, it finds it ex- its expression through the work of finding this common ground. And this is exactly, in my opinion, I've only been in this field for 30 years, but I've been, my mind is a little bit eccentric, but as I have watched, this is what I see happening in companies throughout the country and around the world. Executives and senior managers are learning a new way. Hourly employees are learning a new way. Neither is easy. Both groups are indispensable to the running of the company. Both groups are powerful in and of themselves. They're powerful, indispensable and powerful. When we talk about transforming the work culture, we're talking about this process at its foundation, and at its foundation is a balancing of power. Many, many companies have experienced that power negatively with employees withholding, withholding themselves, withholding their excellence, withholding. But that's still a powerful act. That's an act of will. The roles and the power Basis remain distinct. Senior executives and value-add employees, executives and senior managers still have their own set of duties, responsibilities, and function. Remember I talked about it? Vision, mission, values, beliefs, structure, resources, strategy. This is the domain of executives. And hourly employees still have theirs. There is no effort to blend those Instead, both sides commit to identifying and embracing a common purpose, and that common purpose is achieving enterprise excellence for the prosperity and the long life of the company, the workforce, the shareholders, the community at large. When found, this common purpose allows both sides to deploy their strengths for the common good. They seek to pull their strengths, but listen to this, not become homogenized they don't seek to become one thing homogenized this is again for me it is the description of a great marriage two dazzling individuals and somehow or other they love each other enough to come together and to cohabitate to have children to make contributions and they keep their strength and their distinctness i mean if you've met some very substantial couples some of them become homogenized. They even look alike. Their dogs look like them as well and their cats. But some of them are really distinctively different. Both are admirable and both is a surprise. So we're going to go into a break now. I want to talk about supervisors because I'm sorry to say you guys are caught in the middle, but I also want to advance the discussion beyond that and talk about the hidden geometry of empowerment. See you in a minute.
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN.
1: Are you ready to bring the power of the visual workplace to your company? Gwendolyn Galsworth, visual workplace expert and award winning author, is available to help you harness and maximize that power. With nearly 30 years of hands on experience, Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website, again, is visualworkplace.com. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense, with Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. If you have a question or comment about today's program, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's toll free, 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to radio at visualworkplace.com. Now, back to the program.
2: Hi, it's Gwendolyn. You're at the Visual Workplace. I was chomping at the bit to come back because I want to continue this discussion while it's ripe in your mind. So we're talking about the balancing of power when we have executives, senior managers, hourly employees make an effort to identify their common purpose, find their common purpose and yet, and deploy their strengths for the common good and yet remain distinct. But you know what? There's another group, another player in this shifting balance that don't have that much flexibility, middle managers and supervisors, union leaders are included. These employees are the translation point of the change. They are carrying messages back and forth between the top and the bottom and the bottom and the top, and they are operationalizing the new paradigm of power and empowerment. But they, because they're the translation point, they're really caught in the middle. They're neither fish nor fowl. They're not an apple. They're not an orange. It's not an easy task. The goals of the general and the foot soldier are clearly defined, but the lieutenants and sergeants have to make them make those goals happen. Theirs is a role of support and coaching and influencing. Traditionally speaking, middle managers and supervisors are the problem solvers of the enterprise, and God bless every single one of you. But most of the time, the problems are not theirs. They are inherited from the generals and the foot soldiers. And both groups are expecting solutions, and they're expecting them now. (laughs) Hmm? Supervisors and and managers have been greatly neglected in this great transformation, I will tell you. I've developed a a methodology or kind of a, a paradigm of thinking called becoming a a leader of improvement, and it's for supervisors so they can begin to shift their identity. But God bless you, every single one of you, you're caught in the middle. You're caught in the middle in the traditional organization, and you are also caught in the middle in the new organization, though your role is beginning to shift. Caught in the middle because you are the transition point between the two. Okay? Okay. And there is a specific set of visual workplace technologies that are designed to help supervisors and managers and beyond. But the inversion must be initiated first. The inversion meaning, okay, let me describe this to you. Well, I'm going to be more linear about it. Let me map it out. Let's talk about the hidden geometry. The top-down pyramid is the starting point for the process of converting the work culture. That is the command and control pyramid. And that's because companies that need to convert are, by definition, functioning from the top-down model. That's why they need to convert. They could have never gone into business or stay in business for very long without a top-down command-and-control model. Command-and-control is the make-decision, get-things-done line of attack. It requires action. And yet, when we study this form closely, as I said before, we see that the top-down pyramid contains another one. Just inside that pyramid is the empowerment one. Dormant, waiting, powerful, but only powerful, but only in its potential. The bottom-up pyramid is embedded, it is hidden, it is imprisoned in the top-down approach. This hidden geometry is both a seed and a promise, in my view. When we begin to see the shortcomings of the top-down, or if you will, the obedience pyramid, we understand that the way to address these shortcomings is by inverting its power not subverting it. Let me go on. It's going to be a little bit lyrical here, but this is how I see it. We turn to the workforce, and in a sense we say, we still need obedience, but this time we want you to obey a deeper knowing than just the company's rules. We want you to find and then to listen to your inner drive for excellence. We want you to obey that. Yours is a new power mandate. Become a scientist of the process. Get to know it for yourself. Get informed. Get educated. And then get active in making it better. Now, this is a variation on the theme of obedience, and it is closely akin to the refreshing definition of discipline that Albert Einstein provides us I'm going to tell you how he defines discipline and you will say to me, Gwendolyn Oprah said that, not Albert Einstein. This is how he defines discipline. This is Albert Einstein. Discipline is remembering what you love. Oh my gosh. Discipline is remembering what you love. So we asked Al, hey Al, Dr. Einstein, you know, you're so disciplined. Look at what you've done. You're such a great scientist. Tell us what discipline is for you. What is it? He says it's remembering what you love. And here we have, as an outcome, in a single phrase, a new culture. In Einstein's rendering, discipline is synonymous with ownership, engagement, alignment. He uses the word love as the umbrella for ownership, engagement, and alignment. Could it be that the premier physicist of our time and Time Magazine's man of the century, he was the man of the 20th century, is proclaiming the power of love in the workplace? And that is exactly the case. When we love what we are doing, we do not need to be reminded, prodded, micromanaged, micromanaged or threatened. We simply do it. If we are blocked from doing it temporarily, we find a way around that obstruction and we do it anyway. Why? Because we love it. We want to get back to it. It feeds us. And I will tell you that is what I see is happening, that as we get people more involved, they're beginning to find themselves in their work and they find themselves in a way to express themselves in these improvement activities. That's why they're so delicious and that's why they're so if you will addictive we develop, we have an appetite for them and finally our appetite is being fed and we don't have to wait until we leave work in order to be fed in that way we don't have to wait we don't have to as i said to you once david white a great poet said made this image for me once he said You lock the better part of you in the car when you go to work in the morning with the windows cracked so that there's something left when you come back in the afternoon and you reclaim it then. We can bring all of ourselves into work. But I want to say that that doesn't happen except through an act of leadership, executive leadership that mandates that it will happen. The challenge in converting a traditional work culture to an improvement work culture is finding the way to ignite that sense of ownership, engagement, and alignment. And after that, the care, the momentum, and sustainment take care of themselves. They emerge naturally and powerfully. This is in no way to suggest that improvement becomes continuous just because people enjoy doing it. With so many priorities competing for time and resources in, in most companies, wanting to do something and actually getting it done can be two different stories. And that is one of the most important applications of visual tools and applications to help us harness the drive for excellence that is built into each one of us. I don't know if you remember my discussion many, many months ago about borders, And how when you lay down borders, you're laying down the pattern of work and why that was important because the mind is a pattern-seeking mechanism. I don't know if you remember that discussion, but if you do, if you do, then you will know that our mind is geared to seek a pattern. And if it's not there, we're still going to seek it. And if it is there, we seek it, we find it. We take a deep breath. We say, hallelujah. I understand. That's great. I understand the pattern. And what does the mind do? Because it is its nature. It looks for the next level of pattern and it puts that in, pl- it finds it or it puts it in place, enjoys it for a moment and then goes on to the stuff that it's made for, which is to find the next level of pattern. And in realizing that, if you take my premise as a premise, then you see that continuous improvement is a natural state for us. We don't have to train people in it. We need to ignite it. This isn't to say that we don't need structures to support it, but it is a natural gift. It is in us. It is a gift that each of us has. Hmm? This is what I believe and this is what I've seen. You know, I could tell you stories, but they would match your stories because you've seen it too. I could tell you stories of people who have been Mr. or Miss or Dr. Grumbler, and then they come to work one day and they change their mind, and they bring that same powerful negativity to improvement without a hitch, without so much as a pause. They just slide it over to the other side of the equation. It's the way we're built. This is the transformation. So let me uh, go into a break right now. When we come back, we will kind of finish up this discussion for the day. And then the next time we meet, we can do some uh, of the myths about participation, which I really wanted to have an opportunity to talk to you about. You know, I know that many, many of you are doing this not only exactly right, but you're pioneers. You're leading, you're leading a new way. But for many companies, I'm hoping this conversation will be helpful to give you substance to why this change is not only needed, but is coming and how beautiful it will be as it becomes more and more in place, how aligned it is to a greater purpose for your organization and for the whole community of organization we call work okay so I'll see you in just a minute I'll be here you come back now
1: Enroll in the Visual Lean Institute and get trained and licensed as an instructor or QMI affiliate in any of our nine core visual workplace courses. Keep your visual workplace going and growing. Visit our website at visualworkplace.com to learn more about workplace visuality, our products and services, and when Gwendolyn will be presenting near you. That website again is visualworkplace.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Back to the program.
2: Hi, it's Gwendolyn. Welcome to the final segment of today's show. We're looking at leadership and the inversion of power. And uh, I think I probably want to... um, I think I'll wait. i got a little poem for you. We'll see if we have time. I wonder if I've read it to you before. It's one of my favorite poems. So we're talking about liberating this hidden pyramid... Transitioning into an organization that authentically reflects something, a word that I haven't used enough in in today's show. And that is the word unity. When those two opposing pyramids become moved to being seated one on the other, this circle is, this circle is expressed, this sphere the star tetrahedron inscribed in a sphere is expressed, and that sphere is the ancient symbol for unity. And I hope it's clearer to you. I know the radio has a little bit of limitation, but you know it also frees our imagination, that as these pyramids begin to not oppose each other, but in fact to seat, to position themselves in alignment with each other, and I will say oppositional alignment, right? Because one's pointing down, one's pointing up. What is being expressed there is unity. The hard work of getting opposites to cohabitate creates a unified field. So when I looked at companies and I thought about how this is accomplished in a business, it is a long journey and many, of many of you are on it. And for me, it's accomplished in no less than four steps, and may I say four courageous steps. The first step is simply the decision, I should say, the first step is simply that management notices the imbalance, the imbalance that the traditional authoritarian approach has created in the enterprise when that kind of strength works as the sole driver of the work culture. You get a distortion. You get a dysfunction. So you got to notice it first. Step two is a decision, management's decision, an executive decision to define, develop and deploy the dynamics of empowerment. We will have an empowered workforce. We will liberate that imprisoned power and empowerment will, will become a way of life in this company. In step three, step three, is simply the breaking of the uh, inertia. So imagine, I said before, the purple pyramid, which is your top-down pyramid, and inside of it is a green pyramid that is mapping to it exactly. It looks like it's a top-down pyramid. It is green. And management's decide, decides that it's going to release the power of the green pyramid so that it can serve the company because right now that power is the power that belongs to the people who are not part of the top-down pyramid and that power is not serving the organization. Step three is the breaking of that inertia, the separation of the two pyramids, You can just imagine one pyramid lying right on top of another, the purple on top of the green, and suddenly the green moves, and you have two tops showing, two peaks showing. That is the beginning. That is step three. That is the all of step three, is simply the breaking of the inertia, and the way you break the inertia is you begin to implement and to implement differently. For me, you begin to implement visuality, eye-driven visuality, and that is what liberates the eye of the operator of the value-add associate that liberates that I that green pyramid that inertia is broken that is all of phase three phase four is the inversion of that green pyramid so that its top slowly slowly begins to rotate as you implement as you troubleshoot as you deal with the barriers in your system and slowly slowly it begins to invert it its top begins to point down and it goes through this cycle, this 180 degree cycle, chug, 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 chug. You're implementing, implementing. And as you're implementing this beautiful, let's call it golden sphere begins to express itself coming from the middle of that effort and spreading out. And the pyramid, green pyramid is coming, going upside down, upside down, upside down. And it's, it's point is, goes from pointing up to now it's at 3 o'clock, it's at 4 o'clock it's 5 o'clock, it's at 6 o'clock ka-chunk! And then it seats and then it seats you've released that imprisoned power you've released the empowerment the power that belongs to someone else, you've released it and you've said here, use it you're going to have to learn to use it and we're going to have to learn how to help you learn to use it But let's do it. That's what we're about. This is the decision that executives are making all over the world. It's so rewarding and so inspiring. It's inspiring because it speaks to something very deep in us. It is the release of the gift that we've been given. And we gladly align it with the corporate intent out of both gratitude and because, you know what? It's an opportunity for us to be excellent. You know, this company needs my help. We've heard, we've heard this from plenty of value-added associates. This company really needs my help. I don't know where it's going to go without me. <laughs> yeah. Let's harness that. And that's the stage four. This inversion of the, of the bottom-up pyramid so that it takes its rightful position. And as we do this, this circle is expressed, this sphere is expressed, and we have The blending of the so-called blending of opposites and yet distinct and enduring differences, distinct and enduring differences, areas of commonality and areas of distinct and enduring differences, beautiful balance, a great marriage. That's what we're talking about here. And that, for me, is the leadership challenge. It's said rather broadly and conceptually now. You know, this is a paradigm of thinking, but there's a lot, a lot of personal stories attached to it. There are lives attached to it, and there are lives that are changing because of it. But that's how I see it. And that is, you know, frankly, also how I see an implementation of visuality. There is the decision by the top executive to have an empowered workforce and we're going to create that first monumental step by implementing visuality and visuality is so well given to that because as I said before because it is eye driven it is a language that belongs to me belongs to you whoever you are what do I need to know what do I need to share what do I need to know I find that answer and then I embed that answer into the living landscape of work in my corner of the world and I get control of that corner of the world. And once I get control and I feel safe, this deeper thing opens in me. And you know what? That's also going to align with the corporate intent. The corporate intent is my, the corporation is my sandbox. It's where I play. And when I play, I mean I am creating excellence. That's played for me because I enjoy it so much. So I'm going to close with a poem from this great priest. He was born in 1844, died in 1849, a young man. But his name was Gerard Manley Hopkins. I'm sure I've read this poem to you before. It should be read with a great Welsh accent. But it talks about the I, and it talks about the I inside of me, inside of you, inside of the executive, inside of the value add associate, and inside of the, all supervisors and managers. It's called "As Kingfishers Catch Fire," and it's a sound poem. But the last line is fantastic. As king Kingfishers are these fabulous, colorful birds. As kingfishers catch fire, dragonflies draw flame. As tumbled over rim and roundy well stones ring, like each tuck string tells, each hung bell's bow swung, finds tongue to fling out broad its name. Each mortal thing does one thing and the same. Deals out that being indoor, each one dwells. Cells goes itself, myself it speaks and spells. Crying, what I do is me, for that I came. I'll repeat that. Crying, what I do is me, for that I came. This is the great revolution that has happened in the workplace and in the world. People are finding self-expression and they're requiring it. And leadership recognizes it and supports it. And it is such hard work. (laughs) It's such hard work. I hope this has been useful to you. I hope it isn't, as my brother likes to say, too airy-fairy. Too airy-fairy, Gwen. Sis, he calls me sis. Right? But I hope it's been useful. Please let me know. You've got my email. Radio at visualworkplace.com. I'm going to do one more a closing show on this, and then we're going to go into borders again. We're going to get back to the hard and, um, hard and concrete stuff. Thank you very much. I've so enjoyed talking with you. This is Gwendolyn Galsworth, and I'm signing off.
1: We appreciate your joining us this week for The Visual Workplace, work that makes sense. Please tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific, featuring your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galesworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Thanks again for listening.
0: Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com.